Good afternoon, it's Mountain Edition. I'm Elise Thatcher. And I'm Carolyn Sakariason. Memorial Day kicks off the week. And the Roaring Fork Valley gets walloped by a communications blackout. I've never seen this happen before. In Pickens County, I have seen phone outage, but I've never seen anything that was this widespread. Aspen City Council still can't decide on a proposed affordable lodge. There could be a Mid-Valley collaboration to increase childcare and affordable housing. Carbondale's marijuana industry continues to expand as the Roaring Fork School District hopes to bring down the number of kids smoking pot. We have about a 50% higher marijuana use rate among our adolescents than we see across the state. Aspen's mayor gets back from Italy with a new sister city. We get the latest for this year's wildfire outlook. And the Hope Center celebrates five years. That's coming up on Mountain Edition. CenturyLink is investigating who caused thousands of Roaring Fork Valley customers to not have cellular, landline, or internet service for more than 16 hours in the past two days. CenturyLink received notification at 5 p.m. Tuesday through its alarm system that a fiber cable on County Road 109 south of Glenwood Springs had been damaged and had caused an outage from Carbondale to Aspen. Company technicians worked through the night to locate the damaged cable, which they did at 5 a.m. Service was fully restored just before 10 o'clock in the morning Wednesday. But during that time, customers of CenturyLink in those areas were not able to call 911 if there was an emergency, particularly if they had Verizon or AT&T as cell phone carriers. Sarah Spaulding is a spokesperson for CenturyLink. Anytime we have an outage, we work very hard to gather all the information that we can about why it happened and how it happened. We're certainly going to be investigating to find out why this happened, but as to any other information, I just don't have that. The third-party contractor responsible for cutting the cable is an electrical contractor who has not been identified. Spaulding says it's company policy to not identify outside contractors. The contractor was not working on a public project, according to a spokesperson for Garfield County. Spaulding says she was able to update local law enforcement agencies via Twitter and the State Emergency Management Office. Pickens County Sheriff Joe DeSavo says because no landlines could reach the 911 dispatch center, deputies were deployed to outlying areas in case people needed an officer immediately. Multiple Pickens County alerts were sent out asking people to go to the nearest fire or police station if they had an emergency. The sheriff says the only call for service was an accident involving a vehicle and a dog that was killed in Old Snowmass. He says the outage is a reminder of how technology can make systems vulnerable. I've never seen this happen before. In Pickens County, I have seen phone outage, and then we're able to transfer to another center. But I've never seen anything that was this widespread that prevented us from doing that. People ask when I brief county staff, is there anything we can do? And, you know, it's stuff we're thinking about, but short of a bat light, you know, I don't know what you can do. We are incredibly dependent on technology. The Aspen Police Department also took to the streets to alert local businesses. A backup phone number was set up early Wednesday as an alternative for residents to call a cell phone within the emergency dispatch center. Officials in the Mid-Valley are trying to find a way to join forces on two big issues, child care and affordable housing. So there was an unusual collaborative meeting Tuesday night. 
Representatives of Eagle County, the town of Basalt, and Pitkin County gathered in Elgebel with a room full of attendees watching closely. Commissioners and town councilors were supposed to discuss a range of issues from education to a kayak park, but a shortage in daycare and affordable housing took center stage. Basalt town manager Mike Scanlon said it was up to elected officials to tackle those problems because he and county managers usually handle far simpler issues. A street light that's out, a water line that's broken. We know what the solutions are, they're they're easy to resolve. Whereas a lack of rental housing and child care is a community-wide problem, officials seemed similarly daunted by those issues but tried to find at least one solution to pursue. Eagle County Commissioner Kathy Chandler-Henry suggested using an already existing method. It seems to me like the open space is a good model that Pickens County and Eagle County have been collaborating on open space and, for example, identifying and basalt, yeah, that we want to make open space in the valley floor in this mid-valley area. So could we do that with housing? Other attendees pointed to RAFTA as an example of many jurisdictions successfully joining forces to improve local services. Several at the table pushed for a concrete step forward. Basalt Town Council member Rick Stevens. And most of the development that's going to happen in the next 10 to 15 years is going to happen here. My suggestion is the town of Basal does the work, and Eagle and Pitkin assign someone to that effort. In the case of daycare, we pick a site, come up with an idea of what to do with it. Stevens and others highlighted property Basalt already owns. In the end, representatives of Eagle and Pitkin counties and Basalt agree to create a subcommittee to look at the most affordable and effective ways to improve housing and child care options. Nearly everyone in the room praised the group for meeting for the first time to address those issues. John Bennett is director of the Cradle to Career Initiative. There's more support for these issues among yourselves combined than we have seen maybe ever in this valley. It's quite extraordinary. There's a groundswell of community support. There's so many different organizations from Parachute to Aspen thinking about and working on these issues. The three governments plan to continue hashing out possible affordable housing and child care projects at another to-be-determined meeting. Aspen City Council again considered an affordable lodge proposal Tuesday night, but after five hours of public review, council members put off deciding whether to approve it. It's called Base 2 and is connected with another affordable lodge called Base 1, which was approved by council earlier this year. Combined, they would house around 80 rooms that would be priced at $150 a night. The biggest bone of contention that council has to consider is developer Mark Hunt's request for a variance to the land use code that requires off-street parking. Council did allow Hunt to provide parking off-street from Base 1, which will be located at Cooper Avenue across from City Market. Providing affordable lodging has been a community goal for decades in this resort community that has become too expensive for the average tourist to handle. Hunt reminded council members that the city first approached him to build the lodges instead of his plan for commercial retail buildings. I look at the reason that we're here is it truly was a collaboration of the public and the private working together, myself and the city, to truly try to work on something to come up with a a potential solution. Similar to its counterpart, Base 2 would accommodate two commercial operations on the ground floor, a cafe and retail shop, 
as well as a rooftop space that would serve as a so-called public amenity. Dozens of people spoke in favor of the project on Tuesday night, saying the base lodges will bring back vitality to the ski resort because of their amenities and the price point will attract a younger crowd. The lodges will also provide an affordable option for family and friends visiting. Council is expected to vote on the proposal this coming Monday. If approved, Hunt says he plans to have both lodges built by the end of 2016. This is Mountain Edition on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Carolyn Sakariasen. To stay up to date with the news in the Roaring Fork Valley, follow us on social media. Like us on Facebook or find Aspen Public Radio on Twitter. Aspen Public Radio, your news, your music, your station. Aspen Mayor Steve Skadron just returned from Abitoni, Italy, a ski resort town located about an hour and a half from Florence. The hamlet is Aspen's newest sister city, and Mayor Skadron met with elected officials to formally approve the new relationship. And it's been four years in the making. I talked with the mayor after he got back. Tell me what you did in Italy and what the takeaway is. What I take away is how appreciative the community of Abitoni is with their relationship with Aspen. The value for them is obvious to assign themselves to our wonderful community. Value for us, first of all, we had a huge amount of exposure throughout the Florence area because of the kind of public relations or media stuff we they, they set up and that we did. So the name Aspen got out quite significantly. It was a very formal process. First, we met in their city hall and a good portion of their community was packed in there. And I sat um, at the head table with their mayor and I said a few words about our relationship and um, we had to sign these documents in triplicate that required a number of signatures. I think the Sister Cities program is an official State Department, United States State Department thing, it's not just two towns getting together and doing something. One question that came up from their reporter, she said, you know, Abertone is a seventh sister city. You know, what do you think about that? I said, um, I visited only one sister city and I know that the commitment made by the local community here suggests a lot about the relationship and not all sister cities are active but it appears that this will be a constructive and healthy relationship for a long time. So you were there when Abitoni had the stage five of the bike race, the Giro, right? They had me on stage, the mayor of Aspen, with the mayor of Abitoni and two other mayors of the town before Abitoni and town after Abitoni, handing awards to the riders. The fact that Abitoni was hosting a stage of the Giro, they were as excited about it as we are around the U.S. Pro Cycling Challenge. You know, this whole uphill economy came from the trip I had to take there two years ago. They set up a meeting for us with Soliva, which is the parent company of Dinafit, and it's kind of this next level conversation where I said, I want your company based in Aspen or a portion of it, and that's the dream. And we met for about an hour with director of kind of marketing and partnership. That, that That's building. They didn't say no. What is your understanding of the point of our sister city program? 
the real benefit of the program is in the student exchanges. And we've already had two or maybe three sets of high school students who have gone to Abitoni and their kids have come here. Then I was thinking, what is the value to the city of Aspen? And one really beautiful thing about Abitoni is the sense of the small town. We talk about small town character and how traditional they are and their preservation of historic values. And I can see very much that this town, Abitoni, is what Aspen was 40 years ago. Having this relationship blows your mind us of uh, how important our core values are. Thank you for taking the time, Steve. <laughs> Thank you, Carolyn. That was Aspen Mayor Steve Scadron. Aspen area veterans held their annual Memorial Day service near the courthouse on Monday. Each year, the names of local military men and women killed in action are read. This year, that list includes some additional fallen soldiers. Aspen Public Radio's Marcy Krivenin spoke with organizer Colonel Dick Merritt before the ceremonies began. The goal is to respect the memory of those that have fallen in combat. That's how uh, Veterans Day started. It was a Decoration Day, it started during the Civil War, and it's, uh, the name has been changed over the years to Memorial Day. And we have all the wars that have been fought. We have uh, from Aspen, World War One, World War Two, and Korea veterans that have been, been killed. How many years has this ceremony been happening? Oh, over 30 years since we've had the memorial. And part of the ceremony is remembering the fallen or reading the names of those killed in action, correct? That list includes more people this year. We, uh, a lady is working to uh, get the photographs of the Vietnam veterans through the Vietnam Wall and and, uh, uh, their photos, we're giving the photos so that people can see in the local papers uh, these young men that died at 19 and 20 years old and, uh, and these were all Vietnam. So we're adding basalt Glenwood Springs, and uh, Rifle uh, to uh, the list this year. And those communities weren't uh, included prior to this year? No, they weren't. But because of the outreach that we have with Rocky Mountain Human Services, we're becoming more unified. And through hospice, we're reaching out. And our geographical area has expanded. So we're bringing in more and more veterans this year. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Good to be in. That was Colonel Dick Merritt speaking with Aspen Public Radio's Marcy Krivenin. The Memorial Day service at the Roaring Fork Veterans Memorial was held at noon on Monday. Recent changes for veterans aim to make it easier for former service members to get medical care in rural areas, like the Roaring Fork Valley. Under the VA's CHOICE program, veterans can go to a private doctor nearby if they're more than 40 miles away from a Veterans Affairs medical facility. Eligible veterans received cards in the mail if they qualified. Joe Carpenter coordinates services for veterans in Pitkin and Garfield counties. They can call the VA hospital and say, I want to go to Dr. So-and-so in Glenwood instead of driving all the way to the VA hospital in Grand Junction. Veterans have to make sure the private doctor accepts the choice card, which generally means the VA will reimburse them for the cost of their care. I've used it myself in Glenwood Springs. The physician that I saw, you know, was more than happy to take the card. The choice program went into effect last fall. This spring, officials hope to make it even more accessible. They relaxed the requirements for how far away a veteran has to be from a VA medical center. Veterans Affairs Secretary Robert McDonald explained the change during a trip in March to Snowmass Village. We've redefined that 40 miles. It was 40 miles as the crow flies. We redefined it to be 40 miles 
by automobile or transportation, which will double the number of people that will be able to access the program. And that has helped veterans in the Roaring Fork Valley. Again, Joe Carpenter. It's a big deal. A lot of guys before weren't getting travel pay because the VA rules said that they, they lived too close, and, uh, and now they don't. Carpenter says generally veterans don't mind going to Grand Junction because the care is good, but the change helps them get reimbursed for gas. As long as they qualify. If a guy makes too much money, he's not going to qualify. Most things with the VA are income-driven. The problem with it, of course, is there are thousands of veterans in line to use the program, and there is a third-party organization that's in charge of the phone bank. Pat Hammond works with veterans in Eagle County. For each visit, a veteran has to call and get an authorization number. So that can take up to eight days, and so obviously this is not something you do in an emergency. But overall, Hammond says the 40-mile change has helped veterans get better access to health care. Problems at Grand Junction and Denver VA facilities have had an effect on veterans in the Roaring Fork Valley. Denver's new VA hospital is on the rocks thanks to ballooning construction costs. And certain surgeries have been done at alternate hospitals after the Grand Junction facility had two veterans die and three become critically ill due to surgical complications. You're listening to Mountain Edition from Aspen Public Radio News. I'm Elise Thatcher. If you missed the first part of today's show, you can find a podcast on our website, aspenpublicradio.org. Even with all the recent rain and snow in western Colorado, the region continues to be in a drought. Some areas have severe drought conditions, including the southwest section of Pickens County. Aspen Public Radio's Marcy Krivenin spoke with Doug Paul from the Upper Colorado River Fire Management Unit about the wildfire outlook. Long story short, this winter was pretty hot, warm and dry for a winter here in western Colorado. Back in February and even March, we were looking at conditions as far as fire goes that were on the same levels 2012 and 2002, which were big fire years. As most of us know, we've got some snow and rain, quite a bit of departure from normal. What that really did for us right now, we're, we're in average normal conditions as opposed to what we were a month or so ago. But it, it put fire season back a little ways, okay? We, we knew it was going to start early. We got the moisture. Now it's put off a little bit. The other thing that we're up against is with all this moisture and the moisture from the past two years, we've been a little greener and wetter. Uh, we've got a lot of fuel out there, a lot of grass, a lot of other plants. 
and that's still there ready to burn. Well, and the fact that it snowed recently, yeah. I'm sure people are not thinking oh, about wildfire. Absolutely. They're thinking about the next fishing trip or, or whatever, but uh, we need to keep that in mind. And you mentioned that there will be a point maybe where fire season will intensify or the likelihood of fires will increase. When when might that be? Typically, lower elevations below 6,000 feet, it would be starting about now. We'd start getting busy. It's a little slower right now, but we'll see. I'd say 1st of June, we'll start getting busy, especially down Mesa County, Garfield County, and then fire season will slowly creep uphill. How is the Roaring Fork Valley, you know, different as far as its vulnerability to wildfire compared to other parts of the state? It's pretty vulnerable, but not in the places a lot of folks think. A lot of folks think Smuggler Mountain catching on fire and and being a big problem. That can happen, but it's not as frequent a, a place that we would get fire as lower elevations. I think of places like, for instance, Brush Creek around Snowmass, lower elevation, a lot of fuels, gamble oak, oak brush. Uh, That's where I'd look for fire. Doug Paul is with the Upper Colorado River Fire Management Unit, which manages fire on federal lands. He spoke with Marcy Krivenin. Major support for Aspen Public Radio's environmental reporting comes from the John Denver Aspen Glow Fund at the Aspen Community Foundation, promoting responsible stewardship of the lands and wilderness of Aspen and the Roaring Fork Valley. Carbondale's marijuana industry is growing. Once again, the Doctors' Garden is at the forefront. In 2014, the business opened the first retail marijuana store in the Roaring Fork Valley. Now, a new branch of that business has gotten the go-ahead to extract marijuana oil and make edibles with it. Carbondale town planner John Laybourne. Right now, what is there is a cultivation operation, and they're planning on moving that one to the rifle facility, which is currently under construction. And then they're planning on using the rest of the building, or actually the entire building, once that moves as their marijuana-infused product operation. That's on the north side of Carbondale. Town trustees gave the green light Tuesday night for those changes. That evening, they also considered another aspect of marijuana in the Mid-Valley. Trustees approved $20,000 for the Roaring Fork School District for mental health counseling and to educate kids and parents about pot. To learn more, I spoke with the district's chief academic officer, Rob Stein. Our kids are facing a lot of risk factors that we know that we need to help them address in order for them to be successful in school and in life. And the Healthy Kids Survey, which is administered on alternating years, gives us a snapshot into the kinds of healthy or unhealthy behaviors and risk factors that they face. What stood out to us is probably, first of all, that students around the state in many ways are struggling, but we have some unique local characteristics here where um, Our kids seem to be facing particular problems that we want to work as a whole community to address. Um, One of those is um, that we have about a 50% higher marijuana use rate among our adolescents than we see across the state. Um, And when the Carbondale trustees were considering changing zoning restrictions on marijuana shops, um, we wanted to talk to them not so much about the zoning restrictions, but about um, raising awareness that marijuana is an issue um, in particular in our community. There's a lot of speculation and not really good information as to what might be causing it. And since the last survey was administered in 2013, um, prior to legalization, 
we don't really know that um, legalization plays a role or what role it will play when we administer the surveys next fall and fall of 2015 we should have we should know whether for example there's an increased use that might be related to legalization so I understand the district is looking at reaching kids and parents to a certain degree to try and better understand and I, I think the term social norming is in there yeah social norming is the sort of concept that we tend to see an exaggerated use. So um, kids will say things like, everybody is smoking pot, when in fact, kids who have used marijuana in the past 30 days is around 27%. And so that means that three quarters of kids are not using pot. So it's renorming expectations instead of everybody's doing it. Well, actually, three quarters of people are not doing it. So social norming is almost a marketing campaign that re-norms people's expectations, that actually the normal thing is not to be smoking pot. And then also reaching parents? Tell me more about that. Same thing. So parents might have the same perceptions, and also we want to give parents some tools for talking with their kids and and thinking about these issues. Um, One of the data points in the survey is quite interesting, that students are actually saying that they're more comfortable talking to um, teachers than parents about some of the issues they're facing. And not to say they're uncomfortable talking to parents. Again, I think the number was about 70-some percent of kids said they felt they could talk to parents about these issues, but they felt that like 80 percent felt they could talk to teachers. So we want to help parents feel more comfortable and give them the skills to have these conversations. And by the way, we want 100% for all groups, so we're doing the same for our staff. One of the things that we're launching in the fall is what we call um, advisory crews. Um, All students, when they come to school in the fall, will be members of a crew with a teacher as a crew leader to guarantee that kids have a place where they belong in school to ensure that they have academic advisement, social-emotional support, that they develop character skills, that we build community in our schools, that we attend to their health and social-emotional needs. Um, So that was already in play. And and I guess I would call that more of a proactive step. That wasn't in reaction to concerns about, you know, driven in like the Healthy Kids data. It was just we know that our kids deserve this level of support. Will that be kind of like a homeroom in a way, only smaller? Smaller and more intentional. Typically, like, you know, at least what I remember from homeroom in high school is hanging out, right? Maybe there was announcements over the loudspeaker. Um, We're really programming this time, so we're really creating it. You know, the notion of a crew comes um, out of Outward Bound. Um, that you're a member of a crew, you have a crew leader, there are rituals that preserve the integrity of the group, Um, people look after each other, and it's that one person, the crew leader, who's really responsible for your health and safety at all times. A lot different from a homeroom. Is the goal to get fewer kids to use pot? I'd say for most risky behaviors, the goal is to delay use. So that's true for drugs, alcohol, and sex. We're not taking a stance that we're against it. We know that alcohol use is socially acceptable in our society. Marijuana use is increasingly socially acceptable in our society. Human sexuality is natural to the species. So we don't want to say these things are wrong or bad. We want to urge adolescents to delay those activities until later in life and to provide them healthy choices and alternatives and ways of processing their experiences. I'd like to address a couple of our subpopulations that we're really concerned about. Number one, is gay, lesbian, bisexual, and questioning students across the state are at much higher risk than their peers for a range 
of unhealthy behaviors um, and experiences. Um, depression rates, self-reported depression rates are double statewide for other kids. Um, substance abuse is probably double statewide. Reports of bullying are higher. Um, reports of feeling engaged in school and sense of belonging in their communities is much lower. So we really have to think differently about this group. They're highly at risk. And I worry that we socially stigmatize those kids and we have to do much more to give them a sense of belonging in our community and provide them support and understanding. Well, Rob Stein, thanks for taking the time to talk. Thank you very much. Rob Stein is Chief Academic Officer for the Roaring Fork School District. That's all for this week's Mountain Edition. Have a nice afternoon. I'm Carolyn Zachariasen. And I'm Elise Thatcher. To hear this show again or download a Mountain Edition podcast, head to our website, aspenpublicradio.org. Mountain Edition is a production of Aspen Public Radio News.